Our scripture reading from uh, the Gospel of Luke is from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the first seven verses. And so I'd invite you to listen for the word of the Lord. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that's lost until he finds it. When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. God. First, I want to welcome you to Boston Avenue United Methodist Church. Whether you are listening in uh, on television or on the internet or you're present here, it's our hope and prayer that something in the scripture read or the word proclaimed or in the music or in the fellowship, something speaks a word to you that you find helpful in your faith journey. And second, I want to thank David for his uh, invitation and, uh, and more than that for his leadership. Uh, leading with love and grace through some uh, turbulent waters in the United Methodist Church. We serve a divided church in a polarized country, and it's not easy to be a United Methodist pastor. And thank you for your leadership. Thank you for all that you offer. And I give God, for every, give God thanks for every one of you and for all that you do for the purposes of Christ and for the United Methodist Church, for every one of you. Every one of you, I give God thanks. And so thank you for this invitation. It's a privilege for me to be here. The scripture I read uh, a few moments ago, here's what's going on. So so the scribes and Pharisees are grumbling. The religious insiders are grumbling at Jesus because he's spending time on those people out there, those outcasts, those folks who are unclean. and, And they're saying, why are you spending your time with those folks out there when you know you ought to be spending it with the, the good people in here, right? And so Jesus kind of rolls his eyes, that, that's added to the text, um, <laughs> and he tells him this parable, which one of you, if you have a hundred sheep and one wanders off, wouldn't leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? When he finds it, he'd lay it on his shoulders and rejoice, and he'd get together his friends and say, rejoice with me for the sheep that is lost is found. And then he tells those kind of grumbly Pharisees, I tell you there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So I love this parable, and, um, and I, maybe it's because I grew up in West Texas in a part of the state of Texas that calls itself the woolen mohair capital of the world. Now that's pretty presumptuous, I don't know what Scotland thought about that or New Zealand or something. But, but sheep and goats was the major industry. And also in that part of the state, there were these great rivers, the Pecos and the Rio Grande, that cut through the millennia these, uh, these just striking canyons and cliffs. And as a young boy, I'd canoe with my dad on these rivers. And sometimes we'd be canoeing along, and on the sheer face of one of these uh, cliffs, there would be uh, like 250 feet from the bottom, 50 feet from the top, right on the face of the cliff, there'd be a single uh, goat balanced on a few square inches of rock and stretching out its neck for something to eat. And you just had to wonder, 
what was that goat thinking about that morning when it got up, you know? I think I'm going to go somewhere where it's so precarious I may not ever be able to return. You know, just what was, what was it thinking about? There was a, a, a writer of biblical commentaries back uh, before I was born, uh, George Arthur Buttrick, and he, as he was uh, contemplating this, he kind of gave a language to help us understand this parable a little bit better. And, uh, and he sets up this little dialogue between a, a city guy and a farmer. And, and one of the farmer's sheep has gotten lost, and the city guy says, so how do they get lost like that? And uh, the farmer says, well, they just nibble themselves lost, right? They put their heads down, go from one little uh, tuft of green grass to another till they find a hole in the fence. They stick their heads through, and they can never find them their way back. They just nibble themselves lost. Now, I would suggest that this is actually a pretty poignant and penetrating description of the human condition. <laughs> that what you and I share with everybody else is that we have this propensity to nibble ourselves lost. And this describes how we get disconnected from, from our own best selves and what God created us to be. This describes how we get disconnected from those people we love the most and we share our lives with. This is, describes how we get disconnected from the community of faith, the church, and even from God himself. We don't intend to, we just nibble ourselves lost. So it describes how we get disconnected from our own best selves and what God created us to be. Now this is going to be an oversimplification, but bear with me. I, I hope it, you'll get the sense of what I'm saying. No one says to those uh, who are dearest uh, and who they share their lives with one day, gee, I've been thinking about it and I've decided to become an alcoholic. And so tomorrow... When I come home, I'm going to drink until my mind is pickled, and I'm going to do that day after day after day until nobody in this household even recognizes me anymore, until I start sleeping over and lose the job and we lose the house. What do you think about my plan? It doesn't work that way, right? So how does someone end up at age 45, 55, 65 at a, at a place as precarious as that goat up there on the sheer face of the cliff. Well, I don't know, you know, maybe a phase of life where drinking just to be cool, everybody else does it. Maybe a phase of life where suddenly it shifts to drinking to relax, all the stresses of work and family. Maybe another shift of drinking to uh, escape and cut off and isolate uh, and suddenly end up someplace they never imagined. This is not the story that comes later in this chapter of the uh, prodigal son who purposely rebels against the father. This is of the lost sheep who just nibbles himself lost. This also describes how we get connected from those we share our lives with, who uh, are our spouses and partners and children and families. And it's, you know, if we're not careful, we get so absorbed in our work, so absorbed in our own activities and leisure interests and hobbies and that, that, that one day we drive to our home address and open the door and there are these strangers living in our house. And we think, how did we become so strange? How did we, it become so that we hardly recognize each other anyway, anymore? We didn't intend to. We just nibble ourselves lost. This describes many times how people get disconnected from the church. Uh, they don't intend to, but they develop patterns of life that take them away from the church. I, I remember a church consultant from an earlier generation, Lyle Schaller, who 
who studied congregations of all sizes, including those just like Boston Avenue. And, they, and, and it's like he, he wanted to figure out how long does it take for someone who has uh, been active in the worship life, the community life, the service life of a church, if they become inactive or disconnected from it, how long does it take before they will no longer ever return? And you know what he came up with? About eight weeks. That someone who has a regular pattern of worship, of connection with other people, and they're gone for a couple of weeks, or they get really discouraged and angry at the church, or they, uh, they have other interests that fill their Sundays and their weekends, suddenly they feel like outsiders looking in. Eight weeks is how long it takes for someone to get lost from a congregation like Boston Avenue unless the community of faith does something intentional to reach out, to reach out and say, we miss you, we love you. And this describes how we get disconnected from God. I don't, I don't know about, you know, we're here at early March, so we're not too far into the year. I don't know if you're one of those who sometimes starts the year with some kind of resolution. This year is going to be the year I'm going to read the Scripture from beginning to end, Genesis 1, all the way to the end of Revelation. Uh, I'm going to divide it up, four chapters a day or something like that. And, and so we're off, and boy, that January 1st, you know, Genesis story, I like that one. And, and you know, January 15th, we're still hanging in there. Somewhere in the middle of February, in the middle of the book of Leviticus, this starts to lose its charm. And so we say, there's no reason being fanatical about this. We don't have to do it every day. And, uh, and so these patterns of devotion and of Scripture reading, of engaging uh, the Word of God, they fall aside. And, and suddenly we realize that when we use the word God, we're talking about a philosophical abstraction rather than a personal relationship. Wonder, how did that happen? We just nibble ourselves lost. Friends, the first... Uh, truth of this parable is that we are all like that sheep. We all have that propensity. We have a tendency to nibble ourselves lost. And if I stopped right here, David, it would be kind of a downer of a sermon. We're all lost. Have a nice day. (laughs) But there's another point. And uh, what Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees who are trying to push people out and get Jesus to focus on just the the right people uh, he says he tells his story say that shepherd who searched for the sheep is the representation of God's love in life and that love God's love is a searching love it's a seeking love it's a pursuing love It's a love that never gives up on any one of us, no matter where our nibbling has taken us, no matter how disconnected we have become from our own best selves or from our families or from the community of faith. It doesn't matter how broken we we feel. God never gives up on any one of us. God loves us to the ends of the earth, and God loves us as if we are the only ones God ever made in his creation. And I don't know who needs to hear that today, but I just want you to hear that, that you, that God loves you, that God loves you, that God loves you. I, uh, there was a writer from 150 years ago or more that uh, uh, went through a period of alcohol and drugs and was just amazed by the grace that uh, pulled him back. Through the, as it was expressed with the community around him. And he wrote this long poem. It's like 160, 180 lines or something. And it's, 
and he portrays God as this hound dog that pursues its prey and describes it, it's like he was pursued by this hound dog and he called it the hound of heaven. And it's in this kind of uh, uh, Victorian language that's hard to, you know, so follow along. I fled him. He's running, you see. I fled him down the days and down the nights. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter from those strong feet that followed, followed after. Now I told you it was kind of a strange Victorian language. You know, when's the last time you used the word labyrinthine? You know, but I like the image of God being this hound dog that pursues us. How many of you have ever been chased by law enforcement bloodhounds? <laughs> Am I the only one? <laughs> Come on. Now, you know what bloodhounds are. Dogs with way too much skin on their face. They're, they're docile, friendly dogs, but, they, uh, but law enforcement sometimes uses them to uh, find a lost child or someone who's broken out of a jail or something like that. And, and you ever wonder how they train those dogs to do that? Well, they use bait. And that's where I came in when I was about seven years old. Bloodhound bait. Somehow it was a good preparation for ministry, but I don't... <laughs> <clears throat> so my dad in uh, Sutton County, my dad knew the county judge who was the keeper and trainer of all the bloodhounds for all the law enforcement in the county. And Judge Cooper would uh, pick us up in his pickup truck and uh, with my dad and I, and in the back of the truck would be these pens with these dogs, and we'd drive out to the middle of one of these West Texas ranches. Been to West Texas? It's just more and more of more and more. I mean, it, it, and, uh, and he'd let us out of the truck, and, uh, and he'd, he'd take a handkerchief or a baseball cap or something that had our scent on it, and, uh, and then we would take off, my dad and I, and we would go as far and as fast as we could go, and we we had uh, prepared for this. We had canteens of water and stuff. And, and uh, boy, if there was something to climb down, we climbed down it. If there was something to climb up, we climbed up it. If there was any kind of water to cross, we crossed it because we wanted to do everything we can to throw those dogs off. And then sometime after we were still out there going and going and going, uh, we'd hear in the distance, arr, arr, arr. And, and we knew that Judge Cooper had unpinned the dogs and had let them sniff uh, the handkerchief or the baseball cap. Those dogs would circle around the pickup truck two or three times, and then they'd just take off together, running. And we knew our time was about up. And it didn't matter how much we threw, tried to throw, throw them off, they always, they followed our scent rather than our trail, which means if the wind's blowing this way and we go up this hill and down that draw, these dogs would be overcome, you know, going up this hill and that draw, and then eventually, though, they'd turn into the wind, and they'd get us every time. And they'd, they were trained to stop about 50, 75 feet away and just stop and howl because in a real-life situation, if they came close, they might be harmed uh, by the person they're pursuing. And so they'd just stop, you know, four or five, arr, 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 just howling. And then Judge Cooper would come pick us up and, uh, and, and take us back home. Now... Why do they use bloodhounds instead of some other breed of dog? You know, dachshunds or something. <laughs> Maybe that one's obvious, right? <laughs> 
Now, I'm no, key, I'm no expert on, on dogs, but as I understand it, bloodhounds, uh, I mean, all dogs have a keen sense of smell, and bloodhounds are no different. What's different in bloodhounds is their persistence, that when they get on a scent, they will not get up, give up until they're satisfied, until they've found the source of it. What an interesting metaphor for the love of God. God's got your scent. <laughs> God knows the unique you and desires to have a relationship with you. And it doesn't matter how disconnected we feel, God's love is a pursuing, searching, seeking love. And that's the good news of this parable. God never gives up on any one of us. Now I could end here, David, and it would be a little, you know, we all get lost, but God, you know, finds us, searches for us, and But there's actually a third point, I think, that Jesus was trying to make, and this was probably his critical one, most critical one, because of the audience he was addressing, which was the scribes and Pharisees who were complaining about spending time with those people out there. They're not like us, right? And so so the third point is this, that, um, that he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees and saying, and so... If you want to be close to the good shepherd and do the good shepherd's work, you'd stop your grumbling and you'd help search for the loss and become agents of God's reconciling love. This is an invitation to do the work of sharing God's grace. Of, uh, and, and, and so this is, uh, this, it ought to weigh on us when people are not in the church now who used to be in the church and we still know them. We have these relationships. Are we just going to let them go? We're going to reconnect. It ought to weigh in, with us when families get broken apart and do we offer ministries that help them either find a new way or, 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 or somehow seek reconciliation. This, uh, this is a challenging parable. I... Uh, For me, it's a parable of grace, the grace of God. Now, the grace of God, to me, means virtually the same thing as the love of God. Except when we use the word grace, we want to highlight certain characteristics of the love of God. So to speak of the grace of God is to speak of its undeserved, unearned, unmerited, gift-like quality that God's grace is for everyone No matter who they are, no matter what their political affiliation, no matter what their view of life is, no matter whether they're male or female, whatever their gender orientation, it doesn't matter. In God's grace, God desires to have a relationship with you. So God's grace is for everyone. And so when we use the word grace, it's a way of highlighting those aspects of God's love. And second, it's a way of highlighting the initiating quality of God's love. That God's love doesn't just sit still, it compels us, it propels us, it calls us, it draws us, it pushes us, it takes us to places we would never go on our own, right? And, and so it is the grace of God in Jesus Christ that causes him to step toward the lepers instead of away from them, even though they were declared unclean. It is the grace of God in Jesus Christ that causes him to speak at the foreign woman at the well, even though it was a breach of all protocols. It was, the grace of, it was the grace of God in Jesus Christ that causes him to invite Zacchaeus, the tax collector, also unclean, down from the tree and tell him, I want to have dinner in your house tonight. 
It is the grace of God in Jesus Christ that has him eating with the sinners and visiting with the tax collectors. It is the grace of God in Jesus Christ that causes him to kneel before his disciples and wash their feet and challenge them to do likewise as a way of life. It is the grace of God in Jesus Christ that causes us to wrap our arms around those who've been the victims of violence in our society. And it's also the grace of God in Jesus Christ that propels us into the prison cells to minister to those who've been the perpetrators of violence in our society. Because God never gives up on any one of us. I love this parable. It is so simple and it is so complex. It is so delightful and it is so challenging. It's an invitation to do the Good Shepherd's work. Boston Avenue United Methodist Church, be that church that is the church of the Good Shepherd. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.